Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Today, my longtime friend and sailing buddy, Dallas Murphy, who has fallen completely under the spell of the Arctic, joins us. Dallas follows the scientific literature while teaching at various science institutions, talks regularly with professional oceanographers and atmospheric scientists. He has published nine books, a mixture of fiction and nonfiction. His nonfiction works about the ocean include the books To Follow the Water, Rounding the Horn, and To the Denmark Strait. Dallas has participated in nine month-long oceanographic expeditions in the Eastern and Western Arctic and three in the Western Indian Ocean. His role as outreach writer was to explain the science behind the daily life aboard research ships and the means by which scientists measure and thus understand ocean circulation and its relationship to climate. Dallas teaches science writing to graduate and postdoctoral students at major earth science institutes in Europe and the US. He's been ocean obsessed since childhood. Today, we'll be discussing the relationship between the ocean and climate, the generous ways that ocean circulation moderates our climate by moving heat from where there's too much of it, the tropics, to where there's too little, the polar regions, and vice versa. Exactly what goes on aboard research ships? Oceanography is a relatively young science because of the brute difficulty of measuring the oceans. Scientists didn't have the technical means of measuring them until the Cold War years. Shipboard oceanography is a combination of sophisticated science, demanding seamanship, and heavy industry. Oceanography is one of the few sciences in which scientists cannot see their subject, except for a narrow strip of water seen from the bridge of their ship, which is largely meaningless for scientific purposes. Therefore, they've developed surrogate eyes to see what goes on thousands of meters beneath the surface. There's no topic, Dallas, that I think you and I both know is more on a daily headline basis than climate change. And the oceans play a huge part in that. Yes, everybody's worried about wildfires and people worried about droughts um, in, in inland areas. Uh, there's you know concern about the rainforest. There's lots of terrestrial-based concerns but the oceans are a bigger part of the world than the, than the land mass. And that has to do with, you know, a lot of what's going on in, in climate change. So give us a primer on what function the oceans play in our climate for the planet. Oh, Jonathan, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, why don't we lay down a couple of first principles? One, that there's only one world ocean. We've named them to our convenience, but there really is only one. And it, they're all connected by permanent ocean currents. That's the technical term, ocean currents. Some flow on the surface, some in the depths. Some are warm, some are cold. They're kind of like blood vessels in the human body, moving heat, in this case, back and forth between the tropics and the poles. So given that there's only one ocean, let's dip into that circle and talk about the North Atlantic. And I think the place to start here is with the Northeast trade winds. One of the reasons why all oceans are similar is because of these trade winds blowing Northeast in the Northern Hemisphere and Southeast in the Southern Hemisphere. But let's stick to the Northeast trade winds. They're blowing in the belt just North of the equator, 20 to 30 knots constantly, 24 hours a day, all year. That water encounters the continent. And when it does around Central America, 
the water has to go somewhere, right? Water can't just come in and stay. Otherwise, right. Central America would be underwater. What it does then is flow north. This warm saline current flowing north along the coast of Florida. Consider this, for instance. Between the coast of Florida and the Bahamas, some 25 million cubic meters of water per second are flowing through that half pipe trench. Somebody estimated that 3 million cubic meters would fill the Astrodome in a matter of seconds. Right. So we're talking about enormous quantities of water flowing north. It's warm and it's salty due to evaporation in the tropics. It continues north. When it gets out of that area between the Bahamas and Florida, the current kind of hugs the continental shelf. It's now called the Gulf Stream. When it reaches the Outer Banks, the Gulf Stream is deflected eastward. Now this is again, warm, salty water flowing eastward. It reaches, say, the longitude of Greenland and flows eastward toward Europe. But contrary to popular belief, the Gulf Stream itself doesn't reach Europe. It breaks up into, into filaments of current and it meanders and wanders. But what we're concerned with when you mention this freshening is an, a branch of the current called the, the North Atlantic Current, which flows between Greenland and Europe. You might know that in Cornwall, there are palm trees. Right. And those palm trees are due to the warm water in collaboration with the westerly winds. The westerly winds blow this warmth onto the coast of England. There are palm trees in Cornwall. The Svalbard Islands in Norway, which lie on the Arctic Circle, are ice-free in winter because of this warmth. Now, okay, so we have millions and millions of cubic meters of water flowing into the Nordic seas between Europe and Greenland. Well, nature insists that if that water is going into that area, it has to come out. <laughs> Otherwise, Europe would have been underwater eons ago. But it can't come back on the surface because of all that flow on the surface going north. So nature does this incredible kind of mind boggling thing. This water is salty, more salty than the water around it because of its tropical origins and because evaporation. Winter sets in, the water grows cold and therefore more dense, which is to say heavy, mm -hmm. but it has additional weight with all this salt. So what the water does because of that weight is sink up north of Iceland. This salty water, now cold and heavy, sits in this huge pool up there and the pool grows. Then the water plunges over this mountain range between Greenland, Iceland, and Scotland. There are gaps in the mountain. The water plunges over this mountain range down into the depths of the Atlantic, 12,000 feet deep. If this quantity of water, to call it a waterfall, is a little reductive. All the waterfalls in the world wouldn't equal the quantity of water falling over that mountain range. It plunges down to the bottom and then does this remarkable thing. It forms up into a narrow current. It's slow, form, it's slow flowing compared to the Gulf Stream, but this ribbon of water flows under the Gulf Stream back along 
the coast of the United States and to all the way to the equator. Therefore, you have a balance of warm water going north, cold water going south in return. It's called in fancy terms, the meridional overturning circulation. This is, you see, oceanography requires imagination. We have to cast our minds out over vast distances, both horizontally and vertically. As I said, the average depth of the North Atlantic is 12,000 feet. This movement of heat, scientists, by the way, call heat both hot and cold. So this movement of heat, hot water north, sinking, proceeding under the Gulf Stream, and back balances our climate. Were it not for that, parts of Africa would be uninhabitable because they would be excruciatingly hot. And parts of the Northern hemisphere would be frozen solid. This is, a, this is a great gift of nature. And it's a phenomenon that knocks me out. Dallas, I read somewhere in reading a history book that there was a time in the last few thousand years, not you know, hundreds of thousand years, where this stopped. And there was like a little ice age or there was some other climate change. Can it stop? Has it stopped? Does it stop and start? Right. There's argument about this. What you're referring to is a period at the end of the last ice age when the ice was retreating and melting. An enormous lake that covered most of North America formed. It's been called Lake Agassiz. So this cold, fresh water builds up there and it's been diked by an ice ridge. And as the melting continued, the ice ridge broke and all of this water flowed almost immediately into the North Atlantic. The climate in Europe had been warming, the ice age was over. This happened and then the little ice age began, which lasted about 400 years. One reason why the Viking settlements in Greenland died out. But there's argument about that. Some people say, no, there couldn't, there couldn't have been enough water in that to shut down the Gulf Stream system. And the whole idea that the Gulf Stream would shut down is nonsense because the winds continue to blow and the earth rotates and determines the direction of this water. You see, what, what I described is, 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 well, it's a description. The reasons for this, which we can get into if you want, they get pretty esoteric. But I think the thing to remember and focus on is that this system is permanent. Now, let's, you're, what you're talking about, too, is all those articles about the freshening. Yeah. Talk well, about the freshening because that comes up a lot. Yeah, we should talk about the freshening only because you can't pick up a paper without uh, an article about the melt in Greenland. I mean, the, the numbers are so staggering. I can't even begin to wrap my brain around it. You know, every no, second, huge. every second, there's like five trillion, you know, metric gallons of water that's flowing out of Greenland. The ice sheet is melting at a rate greater than the Amazon every hour. I mean, some of these numbers are so enormous, doesn't make every, any, any sense. And they're worried, right? That, that with all of that melting, that all this new fresh water will be, has less salinity and is colder and is gonna disrupt the whole cycle of, that you so aptly described. 
And that's going to create, you know, the day after kind of climate change. You know, one day there'll be a tsunami and because the land is going to spring back up and, you know, it's game over for planet Earth or, <laughs> or the humans on planet Earth, I should say. Right. What, are they scaring us? What's behind this? Like clicks? Is this clickbait stuff or is it there is any reality? To some to extent, it is clickbait stuff. Now, there are a lot of things in the changing climate that we need to worry seriously about. But let's talk about the system and this freshening. The point they're making is that I, I read somewhere yesterday that the Greenland ice sheet lost 45 gigatons. Right, whatever that ice. is. <laughs> now, that ice is in the form of calved glaciers, which is the, the ice sheet is fresh water. Right. Like Antarctica, the ice on the Greenland ice sheet consists of fresh water. That is to say snow that's been compacted into ice. So the threat that they talk about is that this fresh water will pool in the Nordic seas and then freeze on the surface. That will prevent, they say, the sinking. The sinking is all important because it's the return of cold water right. in contrast to the fresh water that's flowed north. However, there's really no indication that change, big change is taking place. Something's going to happen here. But if that happened, yeah, Europe would be frozen because this fresh water, the Gulf Stream's not going to stop mm -hmm. because the earth, wind blows and the earth rotates. Okay. But what might happen is that the, the that North Atlantic current, which is delivering all that warmth and salinity to the European, to Europe, to the Nordic seas, let's call them will just curve south of there and not go and not go up there, in which case it'll freeze. Are there, sure. Go ahead, Jonathan. Sorry, are, there, are there threats to other ocean currents? Like there's a Humboldt current on the West Coast. You know, there's an Indian Ocean current that gyrates you know, around the Indian Ocean and the South Pacific. Um, are those under any threats also for, from climate change, from, from global warming? Or is that, uh, are they sort of like less uh, complex? Well, the reason everybody's focusing on the North Atlantic current and the Gulf Stream system is because of the Greenland ice sheet. Okay, thank you. Got it. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the threat of fresh water. Right. Perhaps okay. we should say that this circulation in the North Atlantic is duplicated in every ocean in the world. Again, because the trade winds blow northeast right. and southeast. So there's a circular current in every ocean of the world. They're called gyres. Right. What we're talking about is the North Atlantic subtropical gyre. There's one in the North Pacific and the South Pacific, in the Indian Ocean and the South Atlantic. They're all caused by the same phenomenon, the winds and Earth's rotation, which causes the direction of the current. Isn't El Nino affected by ocean currents or created by ocean currents, you know, that South American climate phenomenon? That's an atmospheric phenomenon. That happens, the, the trade winds in the Pacific, we're a little off the topic, but the trade winds in the Pacific are blowing warm water toward Australia. If the Gulf Stream shuts down, I mean, if the winds moderate or change in some way, then that water kind of sloshes back. Hmm. So you have this big change in the ocean, which affects the weather and the climate. One of the things we have to understand is the relationship between the ocean and the atmosphere. Somebody likened them to two coats of paint on a croquet ball. They're 
intricately related. But because the wind systems are current, are constant, and they will not change, they'll, they'll vary, the, these systems are in place. Now, the reason, say, we're talking about the great garbage patch in the Pacific, yeah. the reason that gathers is because of these circular currents, which right. kind of drive the garbage into the center of the gyre. And that's where they sit because there's no way out because the currents are going around them. Now, that's a relationship between us and the ocean, another way we've damaged things. But I think we have to get in our heads that the ocean is doing this wonderful circulation. Currents on the surface, warm and cold, currents in the deep, and that they serve to moderate our climate. This is a great gift of the ocean. We don't, maybe we don't deserve it, but the ocean has given us this great gift of a moderate climate that would not be so moderate if heat were not being transported north and south. So let's go back to like 200,000 years ago or a million years ago. I don't care. It doesn't matter. The distant, 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 distant past, you know, where dinosaurs roamed the earth. What was the state of the ocean currents then? Was there ice in Greenland? We talk about an ice age that had half of North America under you know, 200 feet of ice. Um, you know, there were oceans in Arizona. So the climate was in a prehistoric stage. What was the oceans like? Did they have currents at that point? Well, they would always have currents because the wind blows. Oh, okay. However, the configuration of the currents have to do with the present configuration of land. If we go back too many millions of years, the land isn't the same. The Atlantic right. isn't the same that the land right. is different. Right. So right now, the ocean condition and its movement is determined in large part, in some part at least, because of the configuration of land. All this water, to go back to the North Atlantic, all this water being blown westward by the Northeast trade winds encounter land. And so they have to go somewhere else. This water right. has to go somewhere. In fancy terms, nature insists on the conservation of mass. Yeah. In other words, water can't just go away. Right. So it has to move somewhere. And the present state of circulation is due or is determined in part by the land that the ocean currents encounter. One interesting aspect about the Gulf Stream is when it flows up through Florida, as we mentioned, it's bounded by the Bahamas and the mainland. This current is reaching down 1500 meters. It flows on along the continental shelf. And then at some point around Cape Hatteras, it heads east. Now it becomes an ocean thing, unbounded by, by continents. Mm -hmm. And it meanders and it casts off eddies and it becomes very complex but it's always moving in the same direction. Then we get to the question of variability. One of the reasons why there are all these studies that seem to contradict each other is because the ocean is really hard to measure. And it varies. It varies on the short term and on the long term. And in a way, the goal of climate science is the so-called multi-decadal prediction. Well, it's very hard because the ocean varies. The quantity of heat going north and south varies. So you take the oceanographer's problem. He or she wants to know what's going on, say, up in the Denmark Strait between Iceland and Greenland, where this sinking is taking place. 
So they stick instruments in the water. Right. And they measure temperature, salinity, and velocity. And water that's come from, well, I was on a research ship where the chief scientist called me over and he had a, had a chart of East Greenland. And his program, which had measured temperature salinity and salinity produces colors. Mm -hmm. So we can see the movement. And he pointed to this fjord in East Greenland. He said, look at this, Dallas. This is Gulf Stream water. It happened to be blue, but that's just because the program set it up that way. This is Gulf Stream water. In other words, the scientists can then measure the movement of water by measuring with really fine tolerances the temperature and the salinity. They also want to know the velocity. But the water has a kind of fingerprint that it maintains, which that's a gift to oceanographers because everything else is really difficult. Right. But you can I, measure a bucket of water flowing from, say, the Florida Strait to Greenland by measuring its temperature and salinity. Really fine measurements, though, because there's very little difference. I assume, Dallas, that these ocean currents in the Gulf Stream affect the living creatures in the oceans. Does it have an enormous effect on the ability of other animals to survive and the fishing industry? Absolutely. This is a very important point. We might think of what I'm talking about is called physical oceanography. Physical oceanographers are interested only in the water. It's content in chemical terms right. and its temperature and its salinity. But we could say that the ocean, the physical movement of the ocean is this giant ecosystem in which everything that lives in the ocean depends. The, the, the perfect example is the loss of sea ice in the Arctic because of warm air and warm water. The sea ice melts and polar bears will either go extinct or adapt because they depend on ice. Now this goes right down to even uh, plankton, right? the movement of plankton. Everything that live in the ocean is determined by this movement. If this movement changes, for instance, if something happens in the Nordic seas, then animals, plants, everything that live there will be changed. They'll either have to adapt or die. I've spoken at length with physical oceanographers. They all agree who they've been measuring this area for 25 years, say, they all agree that great changes are not taking place in ocean circulation right now. Right, okay. That might be changed, that might change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we have in this shutdown, this is a word that gets kicked around a lot. Mm -hmm. Yep. But the Gulf Stream cannot shut down, I stress again, because the wind blows and the earth rotates. It, that, if, if the earth stopped rotating, yes, if the wind stopped, well, but they won't. Right. So therefore that flow northward will continue to take place. What the freshening, which is real, will do to that is open to discussion. All the, of the nine month long expeditions I spent up there in the Arctic was looking at this pieces of this so-called meridional overturning circulation. You can't, scientists devote their whole careers sometimes to one current because the ocean is so hard to measure. You can't do it once, you see. Right. 
You go out there with your instruments and you measure temperature and salinity and at once, and then you go home. Well, you don't have anything. You have a spot measurement. And you don't, in other words, you have a data, a dearth of data. Sure. So you have to go back every year. Yeah. And that's what these scientists do. Some of their instruments remain in the water measuring these things year round. We have to go out, pull them out of the water, change the batteries and put them back in. And at the meantime, taking spot measurements as well by another instrument. In other words, you have to accommodate variation. The ocean is immensely variable within certain limits. So this is a 10 year program. Every year they have to go back, pull the instruments are called moorings, by the way, right. to pull these instruments, take right. off, take out the data, which is basically like a phone chip. Right. And then add additional measurements by dropping another instrument between the moorings. So we get a picture of what's going on over the long term. What are the countries that are really participating in oceanography at a you know, significant level? Well, it tends to be the richer countries. Uh, Northern Europe has some really, really interesting, big, significant research ships. We do too, of course. Uh, there's some in South America, but one of the reasons we know so much about the Gulf Stream is because we're a rich country and the Gulf Stream flows right along our coast. Right. That's what kind of where it started. But now everybody, you might've read about the, um, uh, what's her name, Polarstern, who locked herself into the ice in the in trying to drift across the pole. In other words, they spent a full right. year taking measurements. They had to freeze the ship into the ice. Mm -hmm. It recently emerged with a set of data that had never been acquired before because they were there 24 hours a day. Ice prevents these gliders, they're called, or ROVs. You want to know what's going on beneath the sea ice? Because the melting of the sea ice is another problem. I, I was on an expedition in, on the Coast Guard ship Healy in the Beaufort Sea. The Beaufort Sea is north of Alaska, usually frozen. We found no multi-year ice. Right. In other words, it melted every year. Right. And all we saw was new ice. Well, that's why, all the, that's why all these uh, cruise ships now are, are doing the Northwest Passage, something that right. was unheard of 25 years ago. That's now, right. you know, you can, for, for you know, $20,000, you can book a cabin on basically a luxury cruise ship as it goes through the Northwest Passage. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's another example of, you know, global warming uh, having an enormous effect on, on, on navigation and the trade routes of the world. I mean, that's soon probably going to be open up for like a highway. If I was in the North Atlantic somewhere, would I be able to see the Gulf Stream? Like, let's say I was on the uh, Queen Mary crossing to England. Um, obviously, at some point, I'm going to cross the Gulf Stream. It's going to be beneath the, the Queen Mary because it's heading to America from, from London. If I look down, do I, do I see a different ocean? Do I see a different color? Do I see different fish? How would I know that I was crossing the Gulf Stream? One way would be temperature. No, but I'm, I'm, I don't have a thermometer. I'm just, I'm just standing on the deck. So I'm you just standing see, on the deck. You would see deep, bruised blue water. Okay. And the reason it's blue 
is because warm water is not as conducive to life, is not as rich as cold water. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It is, isn't it? It's a reverse of obviously terrestrial. There are more people in the tropics than there are in the poles. <laughs> That's right. I did a couple of Bermuda races, which crossed part of the races to cross the Gulf Stream Yeah. as navigator. And when we started, we had a satellite image of the Gulf Stream, which comes up in red in these programs. And the Gulf Stream was meandering and it was casting off these big eddies. And when we got in the Gulf Stream, we knew that from the color. And then we could use the Gulf Stream currents to aid navigation to Bermuda in the fastest possible way. Back in the old days, what they did was throw a thermometer overboard or wow. throw one in the toilet and flush the toilet. <laughs> because okay. then you could say, okay, now all I know is that we've crossed the Northern Wall, it's called. It's, that's a bit misleading because it's not a wall. It changes. It meanders, it moves, but you could tell when you were in the stream and that's all you could tell because the temperature rose into the eighties Fahrenheit. Got it. Now you can use those sat the infrared, it's, it's, it's called infrared satellites that measure temperature from space. You can see what the Gulf Stream's doing. There's a lot of that online. You can see the shape of the Gulf Stream just by Googling the Gulf Stream. Right. And you'll see these pictures. To answer your question directly, you would see blue. Got it. So I would know if I knew what I was looking at. The Queen Mary was crossing the Gulf Stream, even in the northern Atlantic. Yes, depending on the, the sea state. Got it. If so Dallas, to wrap up, it sounds like because you know so much and you've written about all the scientists that know, you know, obviously a lot more. It sounds like we do know a lot about these ocean currents. Or am I wrong that we really don't have an understanding? It sounds like there's a you know, pretty good basic scientific understanding of what's going on in the ocean currents of the world. Is that your take or are we still in the kindergarten stage? Well, we've made huge strides. One of the strides took place in, during the Cold War when the Navy wanted to know anti-submarine warfare. Yeah. They wanted to know what the ocean was doing to, to use it to hide from Russian subs or to find Russian subs. So the Navy just wrote a blank check to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, Scripps Institute, others, to go out and figure out what's going on in the ocean. And they supplied the gear, mostly to sum it up, sonar. Right. Because sound waves travel clearly through water. And then we learned a lot from that. That was an historic moment. That's all gone away now. ONR, the Ocean Navy Research Organization, contributes money to these expeditions. They're very expensive. The research vessel, the one I was on in two trips, it's $35,000 a day just to charter the ship. Yeah. We do know a lot, but what we don't know about is a degree of the variation. That problem comes up all the time. Yeah. How does it change? Yeah. It, 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 we know it changes, but it still does in general the same thing we've been talking about, transporting heat from the tropics to the poles and then transporting cold water back to the tropics. Well, I guess you're saying that you know, if we've been studying this for, say, 75 years on a scientific basis since World War II or a little before, how would we know anything really against you know, hundreds of thousands of years of the ocean changing. You know, I mean, obviously we wouldn't know more than 75 years worth of research and that's not a whole lot. 
against you know a long period of thousands of years. Well, we should mention the branches of oceanography. Again, what we've been talking about here is called physical oceanography. They're only interested in the water. There's also ocean scientists who study the geology beneath the ocean. They would just assume the water would go away. That would make their lives a lot better. But those people are looking, for instance, at little shells. <laughs> there are various ways to do this cores of the bottom. Mm-hmm. But they're also looking at little shells of, of limestone animals, animals, that is, with limestone shells. They're called foraminifera. And they pick up quantities of these forams and they count out literally with a pair of tweezers. Look, these are cold water forams. They live in cold water. And these are warm water forams. And then they can tell Well, in the past, there's been periods of warmth and periods of cold. That tells them a lot. There's also marine biologists who come along on the expeditions I attended, measuring things like dissolved oxygen. Yeah. And they're looking for tracers to follow things from the past. You know what one of them was? was Freon. Hmm. Remember when Freon was all around? Yeah, sure. So Freon has a yeah. known decay rate. It showed up in the ocean. Well, they can measure Freon right. and its degree of decay and say, how long has this been in the water? And that tells us something about the past. But what we're here talking about is the movement of water. That's the thing that affects climate most. Yes, it'd be nice to know the so-called paleo-oceanographers, yeah. what went on in the past. Right. But we know enough about the ocean now to know its relationship to the atmosphere and vice versa. And to know what is changing as we continue measuring this. Now, this question about the freshening is going to hang because it's very hard to measure. It's very hard to accommodate. It's, it's new. We don't know what an influx of fresh water in the Nordic seas is going to do to circulation. It'll have some effect. And as you point out, it will affect the ecosystems in which sea creatures live. We see that every day. You know, a small example is the, uh, the lobster industry in Maine. Right, sure. The lobster industry in the Long Island Sound completely collapsed. Yep. Nobody's fishing for lobster because the water warmed too much. Well, in Maine, they have a lot of lobster right now, but they know that the water is warming and those lobster are going to go offshore into colder water. So everybody's trying to make hay while the sun shines, so to speak. And when the ecosystem changes, the ecosystem in this case being the ocean, that the creatures that live in it are going to have to adapt. Now, the question is, why, how are they going to adapt? But the magnificence of this system, I think, is worth pausing on. Dallas, let me ask you, other than your very fine book, To Follow the Water, what would you suggest to listeners if they were interested in reading more about oceans and oceanography and ocean currents? It's everywhere online. Go, for instance, to the Woods Hole Oceanographic website, Mm -hmm. the Scripps Institute website. I teach at University of Miami's Marine and Atmospheric School. Their website also has a lot of stuff. If you want to read science material, you can go Google science papers. There are a lot of those. Is there a popular book that you like? If somebody wants to sit down with a nonfiction book other than yours, is there something else that you could recommend? Yeah, I was knocked out by a book called The Discovery of Global Warming. 
Great, by thank Spencer you. Weird, W-E-A-R-T. And the theme of his book is that we discovered global warming not too long ago when scientists from the various fields began to talk to one another. Scientists were finding pollen in bogs in Denmark, other scientists making ice cores in Antarctica, and then measuring the layers of change and on the Greenland ice sheet. And they're all finding the same thing, but you see, they weren't talking to each other because these fields are esoteric. Around 1959 or 60, they began to hold meetings in which they got together and said, hey, wow, you're finding in the bogs the same thing I'm finding in the Greenland ice sheet and in the forams at the bottom of the ocean. So wait, 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 that means that this warming is global. This was a huge turning point. Dallas, thank you very much. I really enjoyed listening to uh, and getting a, a good insight into what's going on in the oceans around me and uh, the future and the past of uh, oceanography. So I can't thank you enough for your observations and insights. Thank you. You're welcome. My favorite subject. <laughs> it's certainly a worthy one and certainly one in the headlines. So we're very, very glad that you, you came on uh, out of the box to pluck some of the headlines into the science world, you know, take them into the world of science from the world of uh, fiction. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Listeners, thanks again for tuning into Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.